What are the factors behind the popularity of a hard right-wing supporter of Brazilian dictatorships in the run-up to that country's democratic presidential elections? Why is populism on the left increasingly failing to challenge and keep up with populism on the right, both in Brazil and worldwide? Were former presidents Dilma Rousseff and Lula da Silva the victims of U.S.-backed hybrid warfare? What would be the consequences of a Bolsonaro government for Brazil and the wider region. On this week's Global Research News Hour, we take a look at the astonishing October 7th election results in Brazil and probe the forces that are shaping the political landscape of the world's eighth largest economy and pushing it in the direction of fascism. We'll get insights from Brazilian journalist and commentator Pepe Escobar and from geopolitical analyst and author Michel Chosodovsky, as well as a perspective from a Brazilian activist and student living currently in Winnipeg. On this week's program, Brazilian elections and the stakes for democracy. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 12, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Political events may not have concerned Speer in the Reich's early years when he was a naive, reserved young architect completely under the sway of Hitler. As time moved by, however, Speer's character was inevitably corrupted by the all-consuming nature of Hitler's dictatorship along with the personalities that surrounded him. From late 1933 onward, Speer was in close contact with Hitler on an almost daily basis. The relationship included morning walks and conversations, dinner outings and tea parties. This incredibly intimate association with the Nazi leader, who was 16 years older than Speer, must have profoundly impacted the latter's still-developing disposition. That comes from the article, History of the Third Reich, Hitler's Armaments Minister Albert Speer's Complicity in the Nazi Genocide, by Shane Quinn, posted October 12th. Even though this is the biggest energy story right now, vanadium isn't just a bet on batteries. That's why Mining.com calls it, quote, the metal we can't do without and don't produce, unquote. Just as UBM's new vanadium discovery is also an original uranium resource, vanadium can also be used in nuclear energy. By 2025, Analysts estimate that 85% of all vehicles will incorporate vanadium alloy to reduce their weight and increase fuel efficiency. Still, strategic as it is, America has fallen behind, and now that the global race for vanadium is on in the battery game, that will hurt. In China, vanadium is already becoming the alternative to lithium. That comes from the article, The Electric Revolution, Move Aside Lithium, Vanadium is the New Supermetal for Bigger Batteries, by James Burgess. Posted October 12th, originally appearing at oilprice.com. 
Mr. Khashoggi's fate, whether he was kidnapped by Saudi agents during a visit to the kingdom's consulate in Istanbul to obtain proof of his divorce or murdered on its premises, threatens to severely disrupt the U.S.-Saudi alliance that underwrites much of the Middle East's fault lines. A U.S. investigation into Mr. Khashoggi's fate, mandated by members of the U.S. Congress and an expected meeting between President Donald J. Trump and the journalist's Turkish fiancé, Hatice Cengiz, could result in a U.S. and European embargo on arms sales to Saudi Arabia and impact the kingdom's brutal proxy war with Iran in Yemen. It also would project Saudi Arabia as a rogue state and call into question U.S. and Saudi allegations that Iran is the Middle East's main state supporter of terrorism. The allegations formed a key reason for the United States' withdrawal with Saudi, United Arab Emirates, and Israeli backing from the 2015 international agreement that curbed Iran's nuclear program and the reimposition of crippling economic sanctions. They also would undermine Saudi and UAE justification of their 15-month-old economic and diplomatic boycott of Qatar that the two Gulf states, alongside Egypt and Bahrain, accuse of supporting terrorism. That comes from the article, Missing Saudi Journalist Jamal Khashoggi Rejiggers the Middle East, by James M. Dorsey, posted October 12th, originally appearing at the author's blog site, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. With no end or likely impeachment in sight, it is clear that the media and public have been diverted towards a ruse contrived by the U.S. intelligence community. The entire premise of the Russia investigation ostensibly presumes its own conclusion, searching for the missing pieces to a pre-constructed narrative rather than determining what actually transpired. It has all the hallmarks of a counterintelligence psyop designed to commandeer public disapproval of Trump into serving the State Department's objective of undermining Russia and sabotaging even the most modest efforts to be diplomatic with Moscow. The media and establishment can hardly contain their contempt for the working class and the theft of their agency, as if none of their grievances, which the extreme right has capitalized on, could be legitimate. Still, if it were to be determined that the election was compromised by the likes of Cambridge Analytica and Palantir instead of the Kremlin, it would remain a distraction from underlying causes. That comes from the article, Russian Collusion is a Red Herring, Emergence of the Far-Right New Wave of Fascism, by Max Perry. Posted October 11th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. On October 7th, in the first round of the 2018 Brazilian elections, Jair Bolsonaro, notorious for his sympathies for past military dictatorships and homophobic, misogynistic, and racist statements, scored a decisive victory over his nearest rival, Fernando Haddad, of the incumbent Workers' Party, or PT. With decisive runoff elections scheduled for October 28th, the Global Research News Hour got hold of Pepe Escobar for his analysis of what and who was behind the surge in support for Bolsonaro, and how it figures in the larger global context of surging right-wing populism. 
Pepe Escobar is a veteran Brazilian journalist, a geopolitical analyst, and correspondent at large for Asia Times. He's written for Tom Dispatch, Sputnik News, and Press TV, and RT. His articles appear in a number of websites, including Global Research. He joins us from Paris. Thanks so much for joining us, Pepe. Great to be with you. Great to be with everybody. Now, we're... Um, your recent essay, Future of Western Democracy Being Played Out in Brazil, is getting a lot of attention. And I wanted to uh, basically kind of get to your, your, your brief summation of exactly what's going on. What's the, uh, what's the appeal of Mr. Bolisaro and uh, behind the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 dis, the apparent uh, – Dis- disappearance of uh, interest in the uh, the PT Workers Party. This is a culmination of a process that started, in fact, uh, when uh, uh, President Dilma Rousseff was um, re-elected at the end of 2014. Uh, this was contested uh, e- even before she was re-elected. The election of contested by a group, especially of the former Social Democrats in Brazil that had turned uh, ultra-hardcore neoliberals, in fact, right neoliberals, and uh, uh, the agribusiness and the very powerful sectors of uh, mainstream media in Brazil, which is highly concentrated, basically five, six families control everything, uh, sectors of the judiciary, and of course, uh, um, there was a foreign interference, which is <laughs> the usual theme that is usually brought up uh, uh, in Washington, but uh, it's what they do all over the world. In the case of Brazil, well, this was really, really serious because it started with the NSA spying on Petrobras, the Brazil oil energy giant, and also on Dilma herself. Her cell phone was being spied upon. And many other uh, politicians and um, businessmen in Brazil. This material collected by the NSA ended up uh, not mysteriously, in fact, in the hands of uh, a minor judge in a southern state in Brazil who had already connections with the U.S., with the State Department. And this developed into the now famous all over the world car wash investigation, which was supposed to be a corruption investigation against uh, business practices of all political parties in Brasilia. But it centered on the PT, the Workers' Party. And from the beginning, uh, it was very easy to see that the ultimate target was basically to demonize the PT to an extent that it would extinguish the PT as a political force. This uh, didn't take very long, actually. It started, like I said, at the end of 2014, 2015, and culminated already in 2016 with the impeachment of Dilma on trumped-up charges, completely. But the... Let's say what Dick Cheney would say, the big prize was Lula, because everybody knew in Brazil already at the time, two, two and a half, two, two and a half years ago, that if Lula ran for the next Brazilian elections that are taking place now, he would win. And it got even worse uh, now in 2018 because every single poll, independent, not independent, foreign, local, etc., was giving Lula as the winner or even outright winner in the first round. So the second part of the rolling coup, I called it a coup uh, along with many top Brazilian analysts because this is what it was. It was a, 
an extremely sophisticated hybrid war rolling coup. This is something that we never saw in any color revolutions around the world. Uh, it was um, a scheme uh, specifically applied to Brazil, extremely sophisticated. I would say this would be a case history in any political science course uh, uh, from now on. And the second part and the most important part of the of the rolling coup was to try to isolate Lula. And they managed it because uh, uh, against uh, the, ad, the not the advice, but recommendation and uh, by the UN Human Rights Council and uh, best jurists in Brazil, in the US, in Europe, uh, in Brussels, you name it, uh, Lula was prevented from running. So all this inside the, the mechanism of the coup, we saw the emergence little by little of Jair Bolsonaro, which was a minor character for 27 years uh, in the Congress in Brazilia. He was a parliamentarian for 27 years, but a minor one. He only managed to pass two bills in 27 years. So... Uh, 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 ultra, uh, uh, incredibly uh, uh, non-articulated. Uh, we can see parallels, but uh, of course, no comparison, direct comparisons with Trump. It's a completely different case. But uh, authoritarian, uh, misogynistic, uh, homophobic, uh, with the language appropriated to a seven or eight-year-old, and uh, a big, big fan of the Brazilian military dictatorship from uh, 64 to 85, and pro-torture on top of it, against all minorities in Brazil, and against the interests of the, uh, the Brazilian working class as well. And what uh, we could say is Bra uh, the Brazilian welfare state, it may be rudimentary compared to Scandinavia, for instance, but still there is a Brazilian welfare state. So now uh, uh, the, the convergence of, of all these factors is leading us to a uh, an unforeseen scenario for most people living in Brazil, in fact, which is the opposition in the second round between a Democrat, uh, Lula's candidate, Fernando Haddad, a guy who studied philosophy, uh, former minister of education, very well articulated, not corrupt at all, and uh, former mayor of Sao Paulo, which is one of the most complex megalopolises of the, of the world, in fact, against a fascist. Corruption has been such a major charge uh, uh, over the last few years. I mean, according to The Economist, 62% uh, of the population identified corruption as Brazil's biggest problem. You're, you're maintaining that this is uh, the, the, like the ultimate uh, colored revolution or, or hybrid war. And, and so I, I feel like, you know, because there are people, of course, your fellow Brazilians who, who might contest the extent to which this is a, a Washington instigated thing and not building on internal dynamics. No, they contest because they don't have the full information and they have been brainwashed for for, for almost uh, for over four years, in fact. Of course, corruption is a set. Every, the, the point is, everyone in Brasilia is corrupt, period. Every political party, and it's not only uh, with the PT. This has started uh, at the end of the military dictatorship. The first political parties that sprang up after the end of the military dictatorship, uh, rolling through the night, is especially uh, the PSDB, the Social Democrats, are corrupt on a very, very high level, but they are way more sophisticated than the Workers' Party or any or other parties as well. So, so it's Brazil is a cancer. 
if you spend one week in Brasilia, seeing how it works and talk to parliamentarians, especially talk to people to, who work in uh, different cabinets in Brasilia, it's uh, I've seen, to tell you the truth, a lot of <laughs> a lot of hor- horrible political systems around the world. But Brazil is in a class by itself. There's no question. Mm-hmm. So it's yes. understandable that vast sectors of the population, they concentrate on corruption. But it's a very select outrage. It's only directed against the PT, which originated the neologism in Brazil, anti-petismo, which is anti-PT uh, uh, by itself. It's uncritical anti-PT. Of course, uh, m- there are a lot of... Uh, uh, internal factions of the PT who are even more corrupt than the leadership. Th- there's no question about that. But if you compare to the, the the parties that are financed by agribusinesses, by evangelicals, by uh, sectors of the judiciary, in fact, or uh, they are frankly racist and uh, uh, white supremacist, to put it this way, wow. Uh, the, the internal PT comparison pales compared to these other parties. These people were controlling Congress, and they still control Congress, in fact. They organized the uh, impeachment of Dilma. They voted for the impeachment of Dilma, including Bolsonaro. And some of them are being reelected because they're extremely powerful interests behind them, especially this very toxic, uh, uh, we call it the Bible, beef and bullet uh, combo. The religious right, uh, for one, when you bring up the Bible part of it, I- I'm just wondering if this isn't comparable to what we, uh, you know, what a lot of our listeners might be familiar with the United States and their religious right. Or, Certainly. Or oh, yes. Uh, it's it's quite comparable to, to, to the U.S. And uh, especially because we have now, I think, 42 million evangelicals in Brazil. Soon, I would say maybe in 10 years, uh, the evangelical population in Brazil would be even larger than the Roman Catholic population. And this is absolutely outstanding because Brazil, until recently, was the largest Roman Catholic nation in the world. And they're losing ground to evangelicals, which are extremely uh, politicized, of course, very well financed. Uh, For instance, the guy behind the evangel- the super evangelical, let's put it this way, behind Bolsonaro, he owns uh, the Record Net, a TV network in Brazil, which is, uh, if Bolsonaro is elected, probably is going to go after the global empire and become the largest media emp- TV uh, media empire in Brazil because they're going to have all. Uh, the financing they need and all the funds they need from the federal government. And uh, it's not still the number one, because global day exercise in Brazil, uh, ever, uh, since the military coup, in fact, for, for 50 years now, an almost total monopoly of public opinion, because they are extremely powerful, they're very well funded, they reach every nook and cranny of Brazil, even in the, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And, uh, you know, uh, people of, uh, let's put it this way, uh, (laughs) our working classes and uh, millions of peasants, sometimes their only source of information in the middle of nowhere is, uh, you know, looking at the screen and watching uh, global um, newscasts. This is very, very complicated. And Record wants to go after them and, uh, in fact, smash the monopoly, which they could do under Bolsonaro. 
I think we're seeing around the world the impacts that neoliberalism is having on people, and, and, and that was predictable. Why has the right seemed to have done a better job of capitalizing on this malaise than the left? That's a very good question, and it has a lot to do with exploiting the fact that uh, what was the, the old left or the old center left, especially in uh, Europe. And uh, in the Brazilian case, they were mimicking what's, what was going on in Europe. It's not by accident, for instance, that uh, Cardoso, uh, the previous Brazilian president, is very, very close to Bill Clinton and even closer to Tony Blair. Cardoso's models were Clinton and Blair, and they always protected him. Brazil was, uh, under Cardoso, was always protected in, uh, in Europe and in Washington. And they know how to uh, manipulate technology, which uh, the best example is uh, how, I would say, in only three weeks, Bolsonaro managed to go from, uh, you know, 10, uh, 15 uh, percent of the electorate to 46 percent. This is unheard of, in fact, this jump. And it was essentially organized on social networks. In Brazil, Facebook in Brazil is huge, but WhatsApp in Brazil is even bigger. It's probably the biggest WhatsApp market in the world. And the extremely sophisticated fake news campaign unleashed on WhatsApp in Brazil uh, made Bolsonaro a superstar even among people that barely knew him before or people who were not initially uh, uh, driven to vote for him. Uh, they, they used Steve Bannon tactics very, very well. And yesterday, for instance, we had one of the biggest lies of these past few weeks when uh, uh, Bolsonaro himself said that, I know my son never met Steve Bannon. And everybody knows that they met in New York in, in August. There are even photos to prove it. Uh, Bannon was very interested in Bolsonaro, and he offered Bolsonaro's son all that absolutely astonishing uh, um, knowledge that he has that, and that he collected via Cambridge Analytica of uh, psychometrics in different tactics to, uh, on how to exploit these uh, nodes inter in the internet to congregate people. And this is exactly what happened in Brazil to an amazing effect. This won Bolsonaro the 46% that we saw last Sunday. And it may even win him even more because the fake news campaign is non-stop in Brazil. They continue to, to uh, propagate on WhatsApp, for instance, uh, all sorts of fake videos related to Haddad, his family, his wife, uh, the fact that uh, uh, to go back to a, a Cold War image, Communists in Brazil are literally killing children, that kind of stuff. It's it's completely crazy, but it works, especially works with uh, uh, voters that are not exposed to critical thinking or, you know, more sophisticated forms of uh, online thinking. And uh, uh, this is something that the right knows how to do. They, they learn how to do in the U.S. They applied in Europe. The fact that Steve Bannon's movement that he founded last month in um, in Brussels is going to apply it uh, um, on and on until the uh, May 2019 European Parliament elections. Uh, when I was in Milan, in fact, uh, uh, the, uh, I, I learned, and but no, nobody would confirm it on the record. That the Lega in Milan is uh, basically starting a think tank directly linked to Bannon. 
So this is, uh, Bannon is organizing himself as a sort of a not so very well hidden guru of all strands of right populism and neo-fascism across Europe. And obviously he was present in, and he's still present in the Brazilian campaign. I mean, you mentioned the NSA spying uh, on, on Petrobras as, as a, a trigger. Can you identify uh, more of the specific methods by which the CIA or other U.S.-based entities are trying to influence this situation? Absolutely. They are using the Atlas Network. Atlas Network is very, very powerful in Brazil, and they have a, a lot of, uh, uh, I would say, Brazilian branches, different institutes set up by the, the, the Atlas Network. Extremely powerful, extremely powerful with the Bolsonarists, absolutely. And uh, Bolsonaro for them is, is the perfect foil because uh, he went to the, he went he went to Florida, and uh, you know pledged allegiance to the American flag. Uh, he copies a motto straight from "Make America Great Again." He's saying basically straight to the point: "Make Brazil Great Again." But uh, the Great Again in his case is the Brazil the, of the military dictatorship which he supported, uh, including torture, which was uh, very much in evidence in the late 60s, early 70s. One of these tortured was Dilma herself, and uh, Bolsonaro praised one of her torturers on the record. So this for progressive Brazilians is absolutely untenable. It's, uh, they see it as Goebbels in the tropics, totally. And from the point of view of the U.S., and different interests in the U.S., from the Beltway to Wall Street. From the point of view of Wall Street, Brazil is in the bag because uh, they have Enrique Meirelles, former Bank Boston CEO, which was uh, a Brazilian minister, minister of economy. He, he will probably get a role under Bolsonaro government. He tried to run for himself. He, he got less than 1% of the votes. In fact, pathetic. Uh, <laughs> But he is a Wall Street man in Brazil, and a lot of people around Meirelles are will will be uh, very much actors in a Bolsonaro government. The State Department, of course, uh, for, because Brazil would be a springboard for regime change in Venezuela. They already have Colombia, which is a NATO partner already official, and with a Bolsonaro government in Brazil, you know, it's it's perfect. They have Brazil and Colombia, and then they can, they have a pincer movement to take over Venezuela, which is the number one preoccupation for uh, State Department, CIA, even the Trump administration has already said on the record that they want regime change in, in Venezuela. And of course, in terms of destabilizing the BRICS, this is a gift from heaven. Uh, I talked about this with the Russians and the Chinese, uh, Chinese scholars and Russian diplomats. They are absolutely terrified at the possibility of the BRICS being smashed for good. Don't forget that one of the big, big drivers of uh, BRICS integration and BRICS policies that we are uh, we're starting to see now was Lula, when he was uh, uh, in power and he had extreme respect from especially the Russians and the Chinese. And Lula was pushing for, okay, let's bypass the dollar, let's, uh, let's go towards uh, uh, multipolar policies, let's try to uh, 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 make deals, uh, trade deals in our own currencies, let's have a more uh, a strong uh, diplomatic presence. Uh, when he left power, uh, Lula had over 80% approval because he did something that nobody ever did in the history of Brazil. He integrated 
30 to 40 million poor people into the Brazilian economy. And this for people who support Bolsonaro, for the extreme right in Brazil, for the upper middle classes, especially in the southern part of Brazil, for agribusiness and, and for old Brazilian money, this is out of the question. This is a, an ex, has always been an extremely unequal country run by a bunch of families, essentially, um, uh, racist much more racist, I would say, than the U.S., because racism in, in Brazil is disguised as this form of tropical, ah, we all get together very well. This is bullshit. It's an extremely okay. racist country. And Bolsonaro is perfect because he, he hates blacks to start with, but every other minority, and especially poor people. So it's the perfect toxic cocktail. In fact, uh, so in the sense, I would say he's even more dangerous than most of the Europeans, in fact. And he's even more dangerous than Trump, if you think that Trump is dangerous. <laughs> I very much appreciate your insights. And, uh, of course, we'll be watching these developments very carefully. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Okay. We've been speaking with Pepe Escobar, veteran Brazilian journalist, geopolitical analyst, and correspondent at large for Asia Times. You can find his recent essay, Future of Western Democracy Being Played Out in Brazil, uh, at Consortium News, The Saker, and at globalresearch.ca. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Having got a big-picture view, we thought we would try to bring in someone with an on-the-ground perspective of some of the political goings-on in Brazil. We called on an associate by the name of Alex, a former volunteer at Global Research News Hour host station CKUW. Alex is a native-born Brazilian who volunteered at CKUW in 2011 and 2012 before returning to Brazil and engaging in political activism, including protests against the World Cup and transit hikes. We spoke to us about what he's hearing from folks back home and how he's come to understand his country's politics and the rise of Jair Balasaro. I think there's a sense that people have with elections in the, the democratic world that people are voting for a, a set of policies for an ideological, like with the party of the workers or the party of the big business or whatever. But you're pointing to realities that in a sense that the ideology is, is really beside the point. We're talking more about power structures and how they exert themselves. That is that the way people you know, on the ground are, are seeing things? Yes. Um, I would say, first, anything that I say here won't be complex enough to do justice to the processes that are actually uh, happening right now. There's many issues that I could talk about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, uh, if... In a sense, if Lula was this um, the center figure or maybe this polarizing uh, figure for the past uh, 16 years or maybe a bit more, um, or if, if this polarization was between the Workers' Party and between PSDB, the supposed Social Democrats' party, uh, th- that is now changing. What we have in this election now is this uh, new uh, Bolsonarismo and with the entire, not only the left, but the, the, the entire progressive or, or I would say just democratic field 
uh, against it, with the exception of uh, you know allies who might not be so concerned with demo- with, with democracy and and and, and measures and, and the things as he has said, and just hope to benefit from whoever is in power in the next election. Some parties. Um, some parties who have declared neutrality, for example, they have been uh, in government with the Workers' Party and they left government when it became clear that Dilma would be impeached and they will be in government with whoever wins the next election, be it Fernando Haddad with the Workers' Party or Jair Bolsonaro with uh, the new PSL a social liberal party, which is neither social nor liberal. Yeah. Could you talk about the um, the extent to which corruption seems to be a, a major mobilizing and motivating factor for the electorate? For sure. Um, corruption started, or, or uh, better, the uh, anti-corruption movement began to, to gain force um, around 2005, with the main salon scandal, and scandal or big allowance where uh, just like Fernando Henrique had in his own government, uh, you had the party in government uh, paying congressmen for support in voting proposals in Congress. Uh, it, it began, it began uh, to form as a, as a movement, not as a mass movement yet, but as a movement of sorts around that time. Uh, and these people, they began to associate first just the Workers' Party, but then uh, the left in general or even uh, this non-justified maybe uh, communism or Cuba or Venezuela as as uh, corrupt uh, agents. And that's, that's at least not complete. You know, I, I think there's... Uh, a number of people, a mass of people that expected the uh, Workers' Party to not be corrupt, not engage in, in corrupt uh, practices or, or, or be uh, featured in corruption sc- scandals uh, that voted for them in, in 2002 against the practices of Nihiki, who were then uh, disillusioned and, and, and felt betrayed and then joined this movement. And these people, they have been voting for whoever was against the Workers' Party. So in 2006, you had uh, PSDB, uh, and then in 2010, you had PSDB again, and then in 2014, you had PSDB again up against them. And uh, this is just symptomatic of the times that we're living in. Their candidate for the last election, Aesio Nevis, was proved to be very corrupt. He almost went to to prison uh, this past year. Um, so I, I guess these people uh, just having corruption or mm-hmm. this need for for change or for a change of government. You know, seeing that uh, the Workers Party had been in government for uh, sixteen years, if you choose to count Michel Temer. Yeah. Um, they saw that the PSDB would not be enough, and especially this year with uh, Geraldo Alckmin as their candidate, uh, because first he allied himself with most of uh, what we call Centrão, 
which is this uh, block of parties who is not too ideological and would side with either Workers' Party or or the PSDB, depending on their convenience. Mm-hmm. And so they need a real bulwark against corruption. And uh, I think what you indite- what what I heard you mention is that. Uh, Whatever people might think, I mean, people who who do not identify as fascists, but they see in Bolisaro the uh, the fact that he's the only person who could. He may be not be ideal, but he's the only person who could defeat this uh, this uh, corrupt. Uh, yes, I would say some some of them uh, definitely they see him as like this less hope or in desperate times as we've seen in other uh, moments in history people turn to the military as like yeah. the the last way out so he represents this this military this institution that is it comparable to the trump thing in the united states it's comparable in some ways i think the electoral process is kind of comparable in in the way uh, in the sense that uh, first um we have Fernando Haddad, just like the United States or the Democrats had Hillary Clinton. Um, it is comparable and actually really comparable uh, when it comes to fake news and, and social media and inciting people just the correct way through social media, especially because uh, as of August, one of the advisors for Bolsonaro's campaign is Steve Bannon. Breitbart News. Yeah. <laughs> so any that that kind of populism, he he will be there. That's right? a significant factor in the in the campaign, as it's. Uh, I, I would in say it is, it, it is a, a significant uh, aspect, especially because um, just like Trump, and after seeing Trump like two years ago, I, I kind of knew that this would happen. I, I honestly knew this would happen. I had teachers on mine that it was like it's going to be Bolsonaro, man. Why? Um, because it's the same tactics and traditional politicians, traditional parties, they have dabbled a bit at, at social media in the last elections, for example. But they, they, they didn't have the vigor or the, uh, the experience that uh, Bolsonaro has uh, or his advisors, I would say, actually. Um, he has volunteers that, for example, spend a whole day on WhatsApp uh, just yeah. spreading the uh, fake news. Whereas in the left, you might, you also, like you had in the left, the Workers' Party had people whose only role was to act in a virtual, uh, uh, what do you call it? MAVs, so a militant in a virtu- uh, virtual uh, environments. <laughs> but it's it's not the same as in, they, the tools that they use to, to know who to reach out. But the thing is, with uh, th- this logic, this, this logic of, of being a meme. The, the, a meme. The, a meme. He is a meme. Jair Bolsonaro is a meme. I, I didn't say this. Uh, uh, Josias de Souza said this, and he is correct. It's a journalist. It's in a journalist Brazil. in Brazil who has been in politics for over 30 years. Um, he reaches out to his uh, possible uh, voter in different ways. So it's like, if you want the uh, pro-guns Bolsonaro, you have him. If you want the racist Bolsonaro, you've got him. If you want the homophobic Bolsonaro, if you want the nationalist, or if you want the Pick liberal. Pick your poison. <laughs> it's like, exactly. It's like all flavors of Bolsonaro. 
Yeah. Do you want to maybe just like quickly what uh, your your thoughts are about uh, where your country is going? Uh, I mean, as the the second round approaches, I th- what's the outlook for your I country? I think it's it's the darkest time since the end of the dictatorship. Um, I will not be uh, innocent here and, and say that uh, oh only. The fascists, the Bolsonaro supporters are to blame. No, having Bolsonaro uh, as an adversary in the second round of elections was a choice, an electoral choice made by the Workers' Party. Maybe not by Fernando Haddad, but it was a choice made by the Workers' Party. Uh, this polarization is only uh, you know, the, the latest installment in a series of elections that were this way. It was always PT against PSDB, PT against PSDB every uh, election. In this election, uh, it seems that with uh, PSDB implied in corruption scandals and with a candidate that was not, uh, you know, enticing at all, uh, people have chosen like someone who could be a a stronger anti-PT person and that is uh, Bolsonaro but they have no idea what he wants to do institutionally the things that he wants to do uh, I mean who who what kind of what kind of uh, presidential candidate wins this the first round of elections in Brazil and the first thing that he does is say that the world's a fraud and provides no evidence and and then yeah. no one in Supreme Court or the institutions themselves, they haven't realized what's happening. No one in Supreme Court makes a statement, a strong statement, asking him, well, provide us with proof, please, for example. So uh, I think people are very fearful. Uh, there are attacks happening in the streets. Uh, a man was killed in Salvador by uh, supporters of Bolsonaro after he said he voted for the Workers' Party. Uh, There have been uh, aggressions on the streets by supporters of him. Um, So I I, I would say that people are very fearful, and I I personally think that uh, no matter who wins these elections, to tackle these attacks might be independent of that. Uh, I I say that um, Haddad, for example, he... He made a plight with you know his adversary bolsonaro to uh you know turn down the fake news a bit you know let's let's talk and and he was uh refused for example so he, this guy he is going very aggressively all in and I'm not sure if, if he will win this way i I think he will <laughs> okay. well with that alex uh I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me.
Professor Michelle Chosodovsky is Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa and founder and director of the Centre for Research on Globalization. An award-winning author and noted analyst, he's well-versed on the economics and geopolitics of Brazil and the Latin American region generally. Professor Chosodovsky recently reposted on globalresearch.ca an article from 2003 called Brazil, Neoliberalism with a Human Face. The Global Research News Hour spoke to him recently and got him to break down some of the main arguments in that essay. Uh, I know you were critical of President Lula's actions upon becoming president. Could you comment on uh, his appointment to Brazil's central bank and its impact on the economic and social infrastructure of the country over the last 15 years? Well, first of all, we have to uh, go back to what was called the Real Plan. It was a, a plan to essentially dollarize the national currency um, and it, it was uh, it was actually modeled on, on what they did in Argentina uh, and um, uh, which was called the Plan Caballo. And uh, this essentially means it's a currency board arrangement essentially means that that the state can no longer finance programs, uh, investment programs without indebting itself uh, w uh, in, in terms of, of uh, dollars. So I'm talking about the external debt. And uh, that was put in place under Fernando Enrique Cardoso, the predecessor. Now, who was in the central bank? Who was the central bank director uh, or president during Cardoso? It was a former uh, colleague of George Soros, Quantum Fund. And uh, then again, when, uh, when Lula became president in 2003, he had made a deal with Wall Street prior to his election that um, Mereles, um, uh, Francisco Mereles, uh, would become uh, pr president, head of the central bank, and Enrique de Campos Mereles was a former president and CEO of Boston Fleet, one of the largest banks in the United States, which later merged with the Bank of America. So in, in, in essence, the, pres the president of the central bank under Cardoso and under Lula were appointed by, uh, uh, by Wall Street. And that was already agreed in advance. And then Lula made a deal with the IMF uh, and neoliberalism was applied from day one in terms of appointments to major uh, government uh, uh, portfolios. Uh, the, not only the central bank, but the Bank of Brazil. It was a former uh, city, uh, city group bank uh, official who took it over and so on and so forth. So that when people talk about the conflict between you know, um, rising fascism and democracy, I think we have to put things in perspective because if, if there are segments of the population uh, who are voting now for Bolsonaro, it's precisely because the, the Workers' Party did not implement uh, a socialist project or a socialist democratic project, they faithfully obeyed the, the, the Washington consensus and applied 
the you know the conditionalities of the you know of, of the IMF and the World Bank, uh, and then when um, when um, when uh, uh, Rousseff arrived, Dilma Rousseff Dilma. arrived. Uh, uh, in the position of the presidency, there were certain changes which were implemented. And that's very important. Why was there a campaign to impeach Dilma Rousseff? Because she did not, first of all, she fired Mireles, the guy who, was, who was, had been previously appointed by Wall Street. She fired him and put him in charge of the Olympic Games. And then she appointed a, a, a senior official uh, of the central bank to... Uh, to take over, but it was, it was, uh, in a sense, a slightly different um, roadmap to that of the previous administration, and that is why uh, there was a campaign against her because she was not fully conforming with the uh, with the Wall Street uh, agenda, which consisted in dictating the appointments to key positions, mm -hmm. namely Bank of Brazil, Ministry of Finance, and Central Bank. She was still pursuing a neoliberal program, but it wasn't quite the same plan. I mean, what was pushing her away from that uh, agenda? Was it uh, affinity for the people, or was there some other uh, instruments in place there? I, I suspect that uh, Dilma was... Um, was had not been co-opted in the same way as, as Lula. And uh, she had she had in mind a reformist government um, which would express its its positions with regard to to Washington. Um, and uh, uh, it's not to say that the, her government was necessarily, uh, uh, removed from the commitments it makes to, let's say, the World Bank and the, and the IMF and so on, they were still playing the game. But in terms of appointments, she uh, hired from within uh, and uh, did not obey the instructions emanating from uh, from uh, New York and, and Washington. And, and, and that is essentially now, if you look at Latin America, you look at what happened in Argentina, um, what's happened in Ecuador, what's happened in Nicaragua, um, there's, there's been, a, there's been a, a move to displace uh, leaders who have cooperated with Washington, but ultimately have not towed the line so that any kind of reformist government, national government, is is now being uh, rejected um, by the American empire, so to speak. Now, I think that's, uh, that's very important because what we're facing is not so much uh, an opposition between democracy and right-wing extremism. I think that's... A, I think that's an incorrect statement. We're facing an evolution in neoliberal policies. And um, uh, the extreme right candidacy of Jair Bolsonaro uh, fits into that process. It's an evolution from 
reformist neoliberalism with some nationalism and so on and so forth to a much more extreme form of, of um, uh, you know, of, of state management. But bear in mind, um, the, the Washington consensus is supporting both candidates. Yes. Um, and uh, there's a large segment uh, um, of public, uh, you know, uh, of the, in, in fact, even the financial establishment, they are supporting both candidates. And that is something which, which uh, you know, lobby groups <laughs> are doing all over the world, uh, particularly in the United States. But um, Haddad has already made his commitments to, to Washington and, and Wall Street. And he has even um, indicates, indicated who he might actually um, appoint to these key positions. And of course, uh, Bolsonaro also is, is communicating with Washington. So what I've said here is that um, whoever wins, but it, it looks like Bolsonaro is, is, is ahead. He's 46% of the vote in the first round followed by uh, the candidate of the Workers' Party, Fernando Haddad, with only uh, 29%. So in all likelihood, uh, Bolsonaro will win this election. Yes. Um, and then, of course, we're in, a, we're in a very different context. Could you comment on uh, the, uh, with this Washington consensus in place? I mean, we've heard about how IMF structural adjustment programs constrains uh, uh, internal policy. I'm curious to know if you have any insights into the impacts it might have throughout the region. I mean, between any economic ties between Latin American countries, uh, do you see that um, further exacerbating the situation? Well, the the thing is that these IMF World Bank programs ha are applied using the same, broadly, the same menu the same menu of measures, which essentially consists in destabilizing and impoverishing and creating conditions for, for privatization uh, and so on. Uh, so, they, of course, there is a relationship. Now, there's one mechanism, and I think irrespective of whoever wins that election, it will be applied, or it is being applied, and it's being applied practically worldwide, it is a tax on fuel. Now, a ta the tax on fuel uh, serves to impoverish people because it immediately leads to um, increases in the price uh, of essential commodities. Well, it is an essential commodity. It increases transport costs. And if it's coupled with the opening of markets to, to foreign, uh, you know, imports from, from, from abroad, particularly, let's say, uh, competing with local uh, production, uh, it, it ultimately also triggers bankruptcies. That pro I'm just giving one example, but that's, I see that being applied virtually all over the world now. Uh, and who, uh, who enforces that? It's the creditors. The creditors say you increase the price of, uh, of fuel, you tax uh, the fuel. It's a, it's a value-added tax. And then the money which is collected will then serve to repay the external debt. But at the same time, it leads to, it destabilizes the domestic economy and impoverishes large sectors of the population. We'd seen growing regional alliances within the region uh, throughout, the, especially with uh, Hugo Chavez uh, in Venezuela 
and uh, other Bolivarian, uh, you know, Ecuador. I, I'm wondering what what's happening with the regional alliances there as a result of these uh, policies that are being, uh, uh, I guess, continue to be embraced and reinforced in, in Brazil. No, but with the crisis in Venezuela, that, that those regional alliances uh, of progressive forces are dead. Now, there are regional alliances between the elites, and they always have been. Uh, and uh, uh, interestingly, of course, uh, uh, the, the president of, of Chile, uh, Sebastián Piñera, uh, has expressed his support for, for Bolsonaro. And uh, Sebastián Piñera, uh, in the 1970s, was a firm supporter of, uh, you know, of, uh, of the Pinochet regime. Uh, and uh, his government uh, is is also a neoliberal government, so uh, I, I think that what's what is likely to occur is is the coalescence of alliances between you know different uh, different heads of state and heads of government, which are more which are right wing, uh, supportive of uh, of their own um, elites, but essentially. They are proxy regimes of the United States. From the standpoint of macroeconomic policy, it 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 suggests uh, a process of of impoverishment, uh, freezing of wages, uh, increase in food prices, uh, and uh, and uh, with very little countervailing uh, countervailing forces within. The government party, at least the 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 Workers' Party, had a grassroots, so they had to serve that grassroots. But many sectors of the population were impoverished, precisely because uh, um, uh, because th these neoliberal reforms were being applied. Uh, but at the same time, they were they had targeted programs. Let's say in the northeast of Brazil. And those targeted programs, in fact, were supported by the World Bank. Uh, impoverished, uneducated, marginalized people in Brazil uh, have, have been betrayed by, by Lula and by the Workers' Party. And they don't necessarily see any need to, sort, to replicate Lula's um, appointment with a, with a new um, proxy. Um, Personally, I think, of course, if Haddad were, uh, is to win these elections, uh, there, there's certainly room within the PT party to do certain things and to main, maintain certain processes. But nonetheless, uh, let's not be fooled. We're talking about two candidates, both of which are uh, directly or indirectly um, 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 controlled by Washington. Well, Professor Chalcedovsky, I think we'll have to leave it there, but I, I want to thank you very much for uh, once again for your insights and uh, hope we can be in touch again soon. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Professor Michelle Chalcedovsky, Professor Emeritus of Economics at the University of Ottawa and Founder-Director of the Centre for Research on Globalization. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.